Thank you. Thanks, Amy and Christine. As long as I don't have to wear those things on my head, I'll be happy. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. Open your Bible with me as we look at God's Word to the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. If you don't have a Bible, look under a chair near you and pull that Bible out and turn with me to page 1156, 1156. As you might know, if you've been coming here for a while, uh, we have been taking a break from our study of the book of Hebrews. Back in Palm Sunday, we looked at the triumphal entry. On Good Friday, we talked about the crucifixion. On Easter Sunday, obviously, the subject was the resurrection. And today, we're going to look at yet another aspect of the work of Christ during that pivotal time period before, during, and after his crucifixion on the cross, known as the Ascension. And you have heard much reference to that already this morning. The Heidelberg Catechism was a big help as well, but we're going to look and see what God's Word says about this wonderful gospel event called the Ascension. So the text this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll read that for you, and then we'll dive into it. So listen carefully to God's Word. Acts chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, all right, sidebar, who is Theophilus? Most people theorize that Theophilus must have been a pretty wealthy man and perhaps a benefactor of the author of this book, who was Luke. You might not know that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And Theophilus was this uh, wealthy benefactor who probably gave him some money so that he could do research and write the second volume of a two-volume work on the ministry of Jesus and then the beginning and the development of the early church. So, verse 1 once again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave your son to us. And Jesus, thank you that you not only died on the cross and rose again, but you ascended into heaven. So we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you will make clear to us what that means 
And we pray that as we come to a deeper understanding of what this is, that, Lord, when we leave here today, we might be different, that our lives might be different, that we might bear the image of your son Jesus even more clearly. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I thought when I dropped my last kid off at college that my work as a parent was done. (laughs) We have four kids, Susie and I, and when we took our youngest son, Michael, to college and said goodbye to him, you know, I naively thought, ah, he's 18, you know, he can take care of himself, he's on his own now, it's Mike and Susie time. We can finally get back to our relationship, you know, I can get on with my life. Well... (laughs) As any of you who have older kids know, I was badly mistaken. Parenting doesn't stop when your kids go off to college. The college kid calls up and needs money. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Again and again and again. And then he graduates from college, but he's making no money. So what does he do? He moves back into our home. And then she, if you've got a daughter, she finds an apartment and needs you to help her move in. And a few years later, she wants to get married and you have to pay for the wedding. And then they start having kids of their own and you're a grandfather or a grandmother. It never stops. We have now 11 grandchildren. Unbelievably. Every time I turn around, it's somebody's birthday. We made the mistake of promising a trip to Disney World when our grandkids turned five or six years old. But we didn't know that our children would be so reproductive. (laughs) And then we made a really big mistake a few years ago. We took our oldest grandchild, Tyler, on a Bahamas cruise to kind of be the grandparents when the child enters into those teen years, right? Well, now we have to do that for the other ten grandchildren. (laughs) Um, But you know what makes it all worthwhile? It's when one of our children or one of our grandchildren takes a little time to send us a text and say, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Or when they FaceTime us on Sunday night and we have a conversation. Or when one of the grandkids sends us a, a letter in the mail. That's a big, big deal. Kids, write your parents. Uh, Here's one we got from our granddaughter, Talitha, up in Pennsylvania. She says, Dear Gamma and Dad Dad, that's who we are, and Annie, that's our dog, (laughs) I love you with my whole heart. Well, even more. Love, Talitha. I mean, that just makes it fantastic. See, it brings you joy. It brings you joy when the people you love realize all that you do for them, and when they continue to depend on you and continue to need you and continue to thank you for the ongoing help that you give. See, just like my work didn't end when my kids went off to college, so Jesus' work as our Savior didn't stop at the cross. Now, a lot of times we talk like it did. Sometimes we talk like Jesus' death and resurrection were his final acts of redemption. But no. The good news is, and we've heard it today, and we're going to see it some more from the Word of God, is that after Jesus died and rose again, he entered a new stage 
of his saving activity. And sometimes we, we miss that. Last Sunday was Easter Sunday. The beautiful lilies are still here. Thank you for all of those, all those of you who contributed those. But we sang a hymn that's very well known on Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. I love that hymn. But one of the lines goes like this. Love's redeeming work is done. I fought the fight. He fought the fight. The battle won. But that's not true. Love's redeeming work is not done. And it actually won't be done until Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Now look, we know what we mean when we say those words. We mean that his atoning work was finished on the cross. His, de- his blood paid ultimately the debt of our sin. And God is satisfied. But we miss the fact that even now, Jesus is at work in heaven. That's why today's sermon is about the ascension. What is the ascension? Well, the ascension is the event that took place in the life of Christ 39 days after his resurrection. Uh, the 40th day of Easter, it's celebrated throughout the world, Ascension Day. The 40 days of Easter, the Ascension came after that when in verse 9, as it says, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of the sight of the disciples. Or in verse 11, it says that Jesus was taken up from them into heaven. What do we say in the Apostles' Creed when we recite that as we often do. We say, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. The ascension then was the physical event in which Jesus, as both God and man, left earth in a real glorified human body and returned to heaven from whence He came where He is now enjoying glorious and intimate fellowship with the triune God, but he is also continuing to work our salvation out. Now, this is hard. Michael even referred to this in his prayer. It's hard to get our heads wrapped around this whole concept. Jesus Christ is really alive and well right now as we sit here today. He is fully human and fully divine and living consciously in a place that transcends space and time. Ephesians chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The question is, why is that good news? Why should we, like so many Christians do around the world, celebrate the ascension of Christ? Why should we not relegate it to the dusty attic of our lives, but rather should think about it often and pray to our ascended Savior and celebrate the fact that He is alive in heaven? Why is the ascension good news? I've got three reasons for you. Let's dive into reason number one. Why is it good news that Jesus has ascended? It's good news because the Holy Spirit because of the ascension, now fills every believer and empowers him or her for witness and service. Look at verses 4 and 5 of our text in Acts 1. It says, while staying with them, that is the disciples, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
That's the promise that he is referring to there. The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, these words in verses 4 and 5 must have been tantalizing for the disciples when they heard about this. See, they believed in Jesus. They knew he was the Messiah, but they still didn't get it. They thought Jesus was talking about dominion and conquest for ethnic Israel right now. That's why they ask in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were hoping, see, that Rome would fall and Jesus would take the throne of David and rule the world right then and there. They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom that God was talking about. They wanted an immediate, visible, militaristic, and nationalistic fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And Jesus is pretty blunt with them in his reply, isn't he? In verse 7, he says, sorry guys, it's none of your business, basically. It's none of your business. It's not for you to know times and dates. But look at verse 8. Here's the important part I want to emphasize. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And sure enough, ten days after the ascension came the day of Pentecost. When Jesus poured the Holy Spirit out in his fullness upon the people of God. And you can read about that, of course, in Acts chapter 2, the very next chapter. And as you read on through the book of Acts, and I hope you will do that, try to do that this week. As you read through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is a group of people who have been totally transformed by the Holy Spirit who came upon them on Pentecost. The same people who had been timid and doubting and fearful, had even deserted Jesus, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane and as you know that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three different times? Well, after Pentecost, what had happened? They had become men and women of courage and boldness and love and conviction and power. If you read Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, you'll see a man ready to give his life away for the cause of Christ. Why is that? Well, he had been changed by the Holy Spirit. So doesn't this encourage you? It, it, it should encourage us to think that the Holy Spirit has come upon the church and upon every individual believer. Verse 8, the second half of verse 8 says, Because of Pentecost, because of the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Now let's... Stop right there and think about that verse. That is really important. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. You know, there are two ways you might read that verse. Two ways you might read that verse. You might read it this way. Suppose it's your birthday and you've just turned six years old. And you've never ridden a bike without training wheels before. So your dad brings home a brand new bicycle. And he says to you, uh, okay, son, okay, daughter, it's time you grew up. You will ride a bike. I'm going to be back in two hours, and I'd better see you riding this bike around the neighborhood by then. It's time you grow up. You could read the verse that way. Pure command. You will be my witnesses. Get your act together. Figure it out. Get her done. Or you could read it this way. It's your birthday. You're six years old. 
You've never ridden a bike without training wheels before. And your dad brings home a brand new bicycle. And he says, honey, I'm going to help you ride this bicycle. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be right there beside you all the way. You will ride this bicycle. I guarantee it. Now, that's the way you should read verse 8. It's a command, yes. Be my witnesses, yes, imperative. But it's also a promise. You will be my witnesses. I guarantee it, says Jesus. I'm going to help you, honey. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you the power to do what I ask you to do. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to build my church through you. Collectively and individually. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, do you hear the kind, encouraging words of Jesus bleeding out there of verse 8? You will be my witnesses. Because I'm going to go ascend to heaven and pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. You want to know, you want to know the hardest part of my job? It's this right here. It's getting up in front of you people and speaking. See, it doesn't come naturally to me. I wasn't born with a gilded tongue. And besides, there's some people in this church who really intimidate me. You guys are kind of scary. No, I get super nervous about this. I get very, very anxious about this. But you know what I do? I ask the Holy Spirit to help me. I do. I say, Holy Spirit, this is one of my weaknesses. Help me speak. And he does. And he'll do the same thing for you. I want to ask you a question. Where, what do you find hard to do for the Lord? Everybody in here finds something extremely hard, maybe even impossible. You say, I'll never do that. What is it that you find hard to do for the Lord? Maybe it's to walk across the street and say hello to your neighbors. Invite them to come to church. Invite them over to your home for dessert. Maybe that's so excruciatingly scary. Maybe it's to give more of your money to the church. We talked about that a while back. Maybe it's to volunteer for a ministry like, say, the welcome team or to join a life group. Maybe the, you know what, maybe the hardest thing in the world for you to do is to just show up here on Sunday morning. Because you feel lonely or scared or inferior or ashamed of your past. And to think of coming to church and showing up, hardest thing in the world. Listen again to verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Believe that. And and go a step beyond believing it and ask the Holy Spirit to help you do the impossible. Ask Him to give you courage and to fill you with His power. He will. It might not look like you are expecting. But ask the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you to empower you to grow in that area. There is, listen, there is, this is what I've learned over the years. There is nothing the Holy Spirit loves more than to move into areas of weakness as you trust in Him. So that's reason number one. Why should we celebrate ascension? 
the ascension of Jesus. Why is it good news? It's because you've received the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to reason number two. Why is it good news that Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, it's because Christ is praying for you and representing you in heaven as your mediator. He's praying for you and representing you as your mediator. So many Christians love Romans 8. And I want you to look at the screen and review these words that so many of us love from Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And we might say, more than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You fill in the blank. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The part I wanted you to especially notice is that it is good news that Jesus died It is better news that Jesus was raised to life. And it is fantastic news that he is now at the right hand of God, praying for us, interceding for us. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for us. Now, I don't want to spoil our study of Hebrews, but this is a big theme in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He has entered into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain in heaven, not with the blood of goats and bulls and calves and birds, but with his own blood to appear in the presence of God on our behalf and to intercede for us. Now, that's a lot of language there. And if you don't understand all of what I just said, come back in May when we resume our study of the book of Hebrews. But basically, here is what it means. Jesus who knows you through and through, who in his divine nature is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, who in his human nature has been tempted in every way, just like you have been, who is able, therefore, to sympathize with every weakness you have, and who always prays perfectly and effectively and fervently, and whose prayers are always heard. It says that in John eleven forty two, his prayers are always heard. He is praying for you right now. Do you believe that? What would that look like? Let's imagine you're standing next to Jesus, listening, overhearing his prayer for you or for someone else. What, do, what would it look like to know that Jesus is actually interceding for you? Well, we, we have a, a hint. We have a hint of what that would look like in Luke 22. Let me tell you what was happening in Luke 22. Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples. It was just hours before his arrest and conviction and betrayal and his crucifixion. He was in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the Last Supper. And he looks over at one point. He looks over to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan 
demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But Simon, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. He had that conversation with Peter. Satan has asked or demanded to tempt you, to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Notice what Jesus is praying about. Satan's attack upon Peter's faith. That's what he's praying about. And as you might know, Peter did give in to Satan's temptation later. He, as I said earlier, denied Jesus three times that he even knew Jesus. So, yes, Satan sifted Peter like wheat. But his faith didn't fail. Thanks to the prayers of Jesus. Later, Peter went on to be a mighty apostle and preacher who indeed did strengthen his brothers. And he's doing it still through his letters in the New Testament. First Peter, second Peter. Why? Well, partly at least it's because of the prayers of Jesus. I want you to think of the way Satan sifts you. How does Satan tear you apart? How does he rip you apart? How does he try to step into your conscience and awaken all of the guilt and shame that you might feel? How does he try to break you down and destroy your confidence and hope in the gospel? In my life, he whispers accusations almost all the time. What a jerk you are. You call yourself a Christian. You're a pastor. What a sorry excuse for a pastor. Think of all the failures in your life, Mike. Who are you trying to kid? Sifting me. But then I think of the ascension. Jesus is praying for me that my faith will not fail. So when this happens to you, and it does... You know, yours is probably different from mine, but what does Satan do for you? What is, how, does he, how does he tempt you? How does he trip you up? When your accuser is beating you up, here's what I want you to do. Number one, think about the fact that Jesus is praying for you like he prayed for Peter, that your faith will stay strong. And number two, think about Jesus, how much he loves you. Think of him that the fact is that he died on the cross for your sins and they are gone. When he ascended to heaven, the Bible says that he sat down next to his father. Why did he sit down? Why did he sit down? It's because he did what he came to do. That's why he succeeded. His sacrifice on the cross was accepted at the bar of God. Your defense attorney won your case. The devil lost at the cross 2,000 years ago. So you can rest. You can be at peace because of the intercession of Christ. That he is your mediator at the right hand of God. Reason number three. Why is the ascension good news? Not only because you've received the Holy Spirit, not only because Jesus is praying for you, but because Jesus is at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over the universe. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That phrase, God's right hand, let's think about that for a few minutes. It's all over the place in the Bible. 
It's in Ephesians 1 that I read earlier. It's in Romans 8 that I also read earlier. The right hand is the, is the hand of blessing in the Bible. If you read through the Old Testament, look for that phrase, right hand. It's really all over the place, and you'll learn a lot about it, but it was definitely the hand of blessing for the Jewish people. Apologies to you who are left-handed, you know. But in the Bible, the right hand was the hand of blessing. When a Jewish father wanted to pass on his blessing to his son, he placed his right hand on his head. But not only that, it's also the hand of power and authority. After the parting of the Red Sea, for example, go back in your mind to Exodus 15. After the parting of the Red Sea, Moses sang a song. And in that song, he says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In Psalm 110, which is a great psalm about the ascension, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then think about Acts chapter 7, the speech of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And in that wonderful passage in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is getting pummeled with stones. They're stoning him. He's going to die in just a few minutes. But he says in his dying breath, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And most scholars surmise that the standing word there is mentioned because Jesus felt so strongly for Stephen's suffering that he didn't sit, he stood and looked down upon Stephen as he died. But Stephen sees the ascended Savior at the right hand of God. This imagery, this imagery in the Bible about the right hand, what is that? It's God's way of reassuring you that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. He is in control. You know, he's not sitting in some lazy boy recliner. He's not taking a walk. He's not on vacation. He hasn't retired. But instead, he's seated on a throne and he rules over the cosmos. You know, in in actual practice, I think many of us kind of view Jesus like Luke Skywalker in uh, episode 7, The Force Awakens. You know, he's out there somewhere. He's on some planet. Maybe it's the planet Octo or however you say that. We'll go get him when we need him, but he's not involved in our lives now. He's not fighting our battles. He's not delivering us from our enemies. He's not accessible. And the doctrine of the ascension destroys that idea. Jesus is every moment involved in our lives, feeling what we are going through, helping us with our battles, ruling over the world. See, that the idea of the Luke Skywalker view of Jesus is deism, not Christianity. Deism says God just sort of set everything in motion and sits back and watches. We don't believe that. We're Christians. Christianity says, just like Jesus says at the end of the book of Matthew, all authority has been given to Jesus, therefore go. I have authorized you to make disciples of all nations because it's my world, he says. It's I'm its creator. I'm its Lord. I'm its rightful ruler. You know, every morning I wake up and I check the news to see where the latest terror attack is or the latest shooting. 
We're living in such turbulent times, so unpredictable. We feel those words of Psalm 46, verse 6, that says, The nations rage, kingdoms totter. Right? Don't you feel that everything is just so shaky? But because of the ascension of Christ, we can also say, and should also say, the words of Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not, what? Fear. And if and when we do fear, what should we remember? We should remember what it says in verse 11 of our text, that our king is coming back one day to make things right. Verse 11 says, These two angels say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So what difference should the ascension make? Let me give you three takeaways. Three ways that I see our lives ought to be different because of the reality of the fact that Jesus has ascended to heaven. Number one, be be courageous. Be courageous in your witness and service because the ascended Jesus is your prophet. He is empowering, guiding, leading you through his word and spirit. So let's be men and women and children of courage. Number two, be comforted. Comforted by the love of Jesus. He is your priest. He is praying for you, serving as your advocate and your defense attorney at the bar of God. And third, be confident. Be confident no matter what happens in this world. Jesus is your king. He is reigning over the cosmos at the right hand of God. And one day will return at the head of his conquering armies to rid the world of evil and to establish perfect righteousness and peace. So be confident. Remember what I said at the beginning? I said that it brings Jesus great joy when we, the people Jesus loves, realize all that he does for us and we continue to need him and continue to depend on him and continually thank him for the help that he gives us. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you today that you are ascended, you are ruling You are the one who gave the Spirit. Lord, thank you that you're praying for us. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we do ask you to give us help. We are weak, Lord. We're weak. Help us be courageous. Help us feel comforted. And Lord, give us the grace that we be confident in the face of whatever we are going through. And we pray this in Jesus, the Ascended King's name. Amen.